Hey there, and thanks for joining us on Chicago Tonight, Black Voices. I'm Brandis Friedman. On the show tonight... I wish we had big surpluses to work with this year. Who wins and who loses under the governor's new budget proposal? I don't like getting bullshitted. I don't like getting my chain yanked. A crackdown on new dollar stores in Chicago. College-going students are still feeling setbacks as the new federal student aid application rolls out. And rapper and Chicago native Vic Mensa on his effort to help people who are unhoused. First off tonight, after several years of better-than-expected financial situation, Illinois is having to scale back. With a new budget proposal that Governor J.B. Pritzker's aides describe as austere, Republicans say it's anything but. Reporter Amanda Venicky joins us live from Springfield with more. Amanda, what's the governor proposing? Well, Brandis, the top line for many folks is, are my taxes going to go up? And the answer there is no. That is, unless you are a business or somebody who likes to place bets on sports, in which case the answer is yes. Going into today, governor, the governor's office, that is, had predicted a shortfall of nearly $1 billion. Now Pritzker's office says the picture isn't actually that bleak because revenues are doing better than had it been expected. But still, there is a significant hole, and he is looking to fill it by a taxes on corporations and also by increasing the tax put on wagers placed at sports books going up from 15 percent to 35 percent. And though Pritzker's budget is balanced on the backs of those changes, he did not mention them at all during his address. All right, Amanda, what did he mention then? Well, Pritzker says that this is a plan that has to make some hard choices. He says it lives up to Illinois' commitment to being fiscally responsible, but still makes needed investment in certain areas. And among those priorities for him that therefore will be receiving some additional money, education. Now, especially early childhood, that Smart Start program looking to create another 5,000 spots in daycares. Also, a new pilot program that will give families diapers. And then a small child tax credit. This would go to low-income families that have babies two years old and younger. There's also, of course, that $182 million promised for the migrant response. Listen, maybe some of you think that we should just say, this is not our problem, and that we should let the migrant families starve or freeze to death. But that's not what decent Midwesterners do. That's not what leaders do do. We didn't ask for this manufactured crisis, but we must deal with it all the same. Now, Republicans, however, are really fired up about this. They say that Illinois in the past couple of years has spent more than $2 billion on non-citizens. And they say that that's money that residents in their communities, particularly in struggling rural areas of Illinois, could use for schools, for their own health care. This idea of helping people who force their way into this country, uh, you know, trying to shame us as saying that we're not Christian enough, which was very offensive to me. I, uh, I have constituents that I have a duty to represent, and they're taxpayers, and this money is going to be raised at their cost. Republicans are, however, on board with the governor's proposal to eliminate the 1% tax on groceries, that said, that's money that doesn't go to the state. So essentially, that's a cut to local governments that otherwise depend on property taxes. Brenda, back to you. 
Amanda, thank you. And you can read Amanda's full story on our website. It's all at WTTW.com slash news. Chicago Tonight, Black Voices is made possible in part by Fifth Third Bank and by the support of these donors. At Fifth Third, we believe when diverse voices are heard and empowered, communities are made stronger, lives are made better, and the future holds greater promise for all. That's why we're proud to support Chicago Tonight Black Voices. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can drive change. City Council members voted 42 to 7 today to crack down on dollar stores across Chicago. Supporters of the measure say the increasing number of stores has created a nuisance in many South and West Side neighborhoods. The lopsided vote came after an impassioned plea from Alderman Matt O'Shea. Drive past any one of those 149 stores today and you'll likely see overflowing dumpsters, broken fences, broken exterior lights, buildings in disrepair, shopping carts overturned on the sidewalk or in the parking lot. Yet it's funny, when I drive just five or ten minutes outside my community in a predominantly white suburb, I don't see that. WTTW News reporter Heather Sharon joins us now with more. Heather, tell us what the new rules will mean for dollar stores. Well, it essentially means that new dollar stores cannot open within a mile of another dollar store operated by the same firm. And there's also a requirement for every store in Chicago to post a placard saying, hey, if you've got a complaint about this store, here's who you should call. And that is a reflection of what we just heard from Alderman O'Shea, who has been deeply frustrated for years that he can't get anyone to address these very serious concerns about the stores, and he was infuriated today that this problem does not seem to affect dollar stores on the north side or downtown. Hmm. So this vote was delayed for about a month because of intense opposition from business groups and Dollar Tree, which operates most of the 150 stores in Chicago. Why did they fight it? Well, these stores are incredibly lucrative for this firm, and it fills a niche in many South and West Side neighborhoods where we have seen big box stores like Target and Walmart close and be replaced by these now so-called small box stores that sell many of the same goods, but perhaps lower quality and not anywhere near as much fresh food or vegetables. And that, Alderman O'Shea said again today, helps contribute to Chicago's problem with food desert. So he's hoping he can kill multiple birds with this one stone. And certainly, as the name indicates, uh, lower cost, yes. too. Um, also today, Heather Mayor Brandon Johnson introduced a proposal to borrow $1.25 billion, billion with a B, over the next five years. Uh, what's the plan for that money if city council agrees? Well, Mayor Brandon Johnson wants to use this money to really transform the way the city addresses issues of economic development and affordable housing. Right now, the city uses what's called tax increment financing districts to fund many projects designed to eradicate blight and encourage economic development. He said today that those that effort has just not been effective, and this will give the city a pool of money to address those needs without resulting in a property tax increase. Heather, remind us also why TIFs, uh, tax increment financing districts, are so controversial. Well, essentially, it means that the wealth 
wealthier parts of the city gets get wealthier. So if you're downtown, you will see a property tax sort of growth. And the way TIFFs work is that they take that growth and then can plow it into new amenities, new road work, new schools, school additions, and improved parks. But if you're in a part of the city, like on the south and the west side, where property tax has been stagnant for decades because of disinvestment and neglect, you don't have those resources. This is designed to address those inequities, but I think its path forward in the city council is a little bit uncertain at this time. This is a huge change for how the city operates. All right, Heather Sharon, as always, thanks so much. Thanks, Brandis. And you can read Heather's full story on our website. It's all at WTTW.com slash news. major overhaul of the free application for federal student aid form since the Reagan era was supposed to make the process simpler, called the better FAFSA. But some say it's not better yet. The new process has been riddled with delays that have the Department of Education scrambling for a fix amid congressional criticism and leaving many college-bound students in limbo. Joining us now are Namika Bates, Managing Director of College Access at Chicago Scholars, which helps first-generation college students navigate their educational journey. Savannah Phillips, a senior at Gwendolyn Brooks High School. And joining us via Zoom, Rich Hayes, Executive Director of Student Financial Aid and Scholarships at the University of Illinois Chicago. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Um, Rich Hayes, let's start with you, please, because when we spoke in December, there was a big concern about whether the Department of Education would actually have this form uh, ready and online, ready to go at the end of the month. That was in December. They did make the deadline, but there's still some setbacks, um, technical problems. How would you say it's been going from your perspective? Oh, it's, it's been going crazy from our perspective. This is uh, not a great time to be a financial aid administrator, but we're walking <laughs> through the mud together. I'll, I'll say that. Um, but yes, we were supposed to get that fast way. It came out December 31st. It was riddled with sporadic delays um, within the website where people couldn't get on. We got past that one hurdle. And then um, we got hit with more delays because it was said that we were supposed to get FAFSA data from students um, at the end of January. That didn't happen. And now we're getting very vague statements from the Department of Education um, on when we're supposed to get that data to help our students out. Okay, so I appreciate that you're keeping your sense of humor about it. Um, uh, what does this mean, Rich? What does it mean for UIC students and, and future students? So the, the very students that we were supposed to be helping are the ones who are in jeopardy of, of, of not being able to make an informed decision on which school they want to go to because we don't have financial aid notifications because we have not got the FAFSA data. They're telling us mid-March. They're not giving us a specific date. They're saying mid-March, but we're hearing that it could be later. Now, I, I will say that I believe that the Department of Ed is doing everything that they can. I believe that this will eventually help students, but right now it's just been riddled with a, a horrible rollout, and I think that they just needed more time to get it right. So for our students at UIC, we're, we're already doing contingency planning to make sure that our students are whole. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Namika Bates, from the perspective of someone who works largely with students, especially those who are uh, potentially uh, first generation going, college going students, what has this been like uh, for them? Uh, it's been interesting, to say the least, um, but I think for them right now, um, as Rich mentioned, the fact that we're now in the award letter phase at least lets them know that the process is moving along. So from that vantage point, we are they've already started to get their acceptances. That's good news, and that always keeps you That's in exciting. a good, exactly. Yes. Um, but the fact that now they don't know where to make their decision, which is our big next thing, is decision day, um, that's the anxiety now. Right. Where am I going? Right. And May 1st is that deadline by which colleges need to yes. know. Uh, mm -hmm. Savannah, you're a senior at Gwendolyn <laughs> Brooks uh, College Prep, and I know you've been navigating the college application process. What's it been like from your perspective? Uh, I definitely have seen a lot of growth in the community with this process. My mother uh, has joined multiple groups. Uh, text chats um, where they've helped each other kind of get through it. For me personally, it's definitely made me a little bit more anxious about deciding where I'm going to go to school because you also have to think about what will be financially safe for your family. Um, although you might want to pursue one place, it just may not be possible. Um, that's why the FAFSA is supposed to help us, and recently I just <laughs> haven't been feeling the help, but yeah. I definitely agree with the award letter part. I definitely know that there's new things coming for me <laughs> and that at the end of the day, if my biggest worry is where I'm going to go to college, not if I'm going to go, I think I have a pretty great So time. where, where, what's the list? <laughs> you okay. it down. Where, are we, where are we thinking about going and, and how is this financial aid process uh, being so delayed? How has it set back that decision making? So recently, well, when I decided to apply to these colleges, a uh, majority of them were HBCUs and they are very, very expensive. Um, so with the delay in the FAFSA, that's definitely thrown a little bit of a wrench in my plans because I don't know which one I'll necessarily be able to afford next semester. Um, but as a family, we've decided that we can't control the FAFSA, so we're gonna try our best to move forward. Uh, we've definitely ramped up on our scholarships. Um, <laughs> on those applications. <laughs> yes, we can control how many we how many we apply to, but we can't control how fast Which the fast get. Uh, right. right, and uh, how many we get. Namika, will these delays? How might they disproportionately impact, particularly students of color from lower income backgrounds? Well, I mean, our student, most of our students are first generation and low income, so it will impact the majority of our scholars. Particularly, we we do our work through a match fit financial fit. So yes, we want our students to go to the schools that have all the clubs and their majors, but it, they need to be able to afford it. So that delay is really the major, major um, impact on our students for sure. Uh, Rich, there have been concerns over the financial aid info being shared with the IRS and requiring Social Security numbers for all contributors on the form. And the concern there has been whether or not that would discourage uh, students whose parents don't have Social Security numbers, those whose parents might be undocumented and others. Um, has, has that become a concern for the students that you work with? Absolutely. Um, most of our uh, FAFSA workshops have been flooded with parents without Social Security numbers trying to figure out a way around um, how to complete the FAFSA, right? And so uh, the Department of Ed put out some guidance yesterday, as a matter of fact, on what parents can do and what they're urging students to do right now is to either wait for them to make the fix or they created a nine-step workaround that is more confusing <laughs> and less simpler <laughs> than, than we thought it would be. 
Um, and so students, uh, especially with parents that do not have social security numbers, are kind of at a standstill until they can get that fixed. And, and also, I want to I want to say that our we pushed our priority date back to June 1st instead of May 1st. So we was one of the first uh, state schools to do that. But yeah, the, we're walking through this with our students um, and parents, especially the ones without social security numbers to see what we can do to help. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've already moved back that, that, that yes. uh, admission requirement yes. date yes. to June 1st by a month, which yes. is a significant shift, yes. I imagine. Um, yes. what, what's been your advice? Simple nine-step workaround. There's also the, the option of the paper form for students. But briefly, uh, Rich, what's been your advice to students and families about that paper form? Um, so with the paper form, even if a student decides to do a paper form, and some students have decided to go that route, um, they're not going to look at any paper files until they start sending out the, the, the online FAFSA. So the timeline is still going to be exactly the same. It's not going to move it up. It's not going to make it any faster. And so we're letting uh, parents decide kind of which way they want to go, um, whether they want to wait or whether they want to submit a paper FAFSA. But what we're doing on our side is just making sure that we keep students informed. And so not I do a, a podcast of. now every <laughs> Friday to, to let students know and try to say, hey, it's happening to everybody. It's not that's, just one that's institution. That's a good way to... It's across yeah, it's a, That's a good way to answer We're questions for this. people. <laughs> Namika, um, oh, yeah. how, what's your advice to students about handling the stress and the anxiety in a couple of seconds? The most important thing is to continue to research the schools, right? You, you just, it, financial thing is not the only part of the decision. So use this time to look at the other things, and that's what we're doing with our students. All right, Savannah, you said that, you know, you're, <laughs> you're trying to control only what you yes. can, can control. Yes. Uh, what are you planning on studying, and how are you feeling about the, the next couple of months? So I plan to major in economics uh, uh, at whatever school I attend in the fall. Um, I'm sorry, what's the next oh, That's it. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to know. You're going to go to a school, study some economics. I hope you will come back and see us. Savannah Phillips, yes. uh, Namika Bates, and Rich Hayes, thanks to all of you for joining us. I'm glad we can still laugh about it. <laughs> Keep us posted. Up next, a well-known Chicago native on his art and his activism. Chicago native Vic Mensa has taken on many different roles over the years, rapper, organizer, actor, and more. Most recently, he partnered with restaurateur Eldridge Williams for his Feed the Block, Warm the Block initiative to bring food and clothing to the city's unhoused population. And joining us now to talk about all of that, he, all that he is up to in Chicago is Vic Mensa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about first, obviously, the Feed the Block, Warm the Block initiative. Why was that something you wanted to do? I founded my cannabis company, 93 Boys, about two years ago. And from the onset, I knew that to be dealing in something that's been used to steal freedom from so many that it was in my heart that 
ethos of the company had to be to provide freedom and to give back. And so as the first black-owned cannabis brand to be in Illinois, um, we just started off on that foot. And most recently, the initiative that we've been running with is to feed the block, warm the block during the winter months in Chicago because it's bone-chillingly cold. How can people survive this, you know? Um, and so many are denied that basic human right of shelter and of food. So we teamed up with the Delta to provide food. How'd you end up partnering with the Delta? Just energy, man. The Delta's fire, you know? It's just fly. Like, I DJ there a lot. A lot of my friends do parties there. And L is a good dude who shares our values and was willing to work with us to provide, you know, over a thousand meals over the last couple months. L, of course, Eldridge Williams, the, the owner of the Delta there. Eldridge. Eldridge, yes, that's the one. <laughs> uh, what's next for the initiative? How do you plan on uh, continuing the work? I think we're going to do a few more. We've been mainly focused on the south side, and uh, maybe we'll take it to the west side. I think that'd be fun. Um, 93 Boys in general, though, is committed to, like, creative solutions for the problems faced by the people of Chicago. So it might not be Feed the Block, Warm the Block, particularly that we do in the spring. You know, we might transition to where the need presents itself. Um, your latest album, Victor, you cover a lot of ground, uh, including the south side of Chicago. Uh, how would you describe your relationship with your hometown? I love it. I love Chicago. Chicago's given me so much and taught me so much of what I know informed my perspective and my worldview in so many ways. So my heart is always with Chicago. How does it kind of show up in the work that you do, all of the work that you do? I mean, I think the things that I'm doing with 93 Boys definitely directly speak to that, you know, um, serving the communities of Chicago and keeping that focus on home when oftentimes artists gain notoriety and leave, you know. And I've been other places, but I've always come back home, you know. Um, also, your record, Blue Eyes, it is up for an NAACP Image Award uh, for outsta Outstanding Hip-Hop Rap Song. Uh, you History produced... Uh, yeah, thank you for Black History Month, <laughs> although the awards are not until March, correct? Um, we're looking at a little bit of it now because you produced a six-minute short film on the track. Yeah. Uh, that song, is it's deeply personal. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. The song Blue Eyes is inspired uh, experiences in my family. I'm West African from Ghana, and skin bleaching is a very prevalent in the black world at large, definitely in Africa, Caribbean. And um, so that inspired me to kind of speak about my life experience um, and add in some of those of my family for the song Blue Eyes. In the song, you talk about um, an aunt who died from skin cancer from using uh, that skin bleaching cream. Couldn't have helped, you know. Um, and, uh, that's, you know, that's my heart. That's, that's family. So ultimately, I wanted to tell a story that could at once explain my perspective and shed light on an issue that many people may not know is an issue, you know. Obviously, colorism, racism, we widely understand that to a degree, but, like, I wasn't that familiar with skin bleaching, you know, till I started spending time out there and in the Caribbean and realized, like, yo, they're selling skin bleaching cream in the gas station. Like, 
how we got Carmex. Like it's water. You know what I mean? Like every gas station. And they have it in America some places. You'll find it. And the song for you, you talk, though, it's also about, you know, sort of um, your own biracial identity um, and, you know, self-identity and self-love when you struggle with, with your identity. Yeah, for sure, man. You know, my girl been telling me I can only celebrate half of Black History Month. <laughs> my half ended on the 15th, so... You guys could keep having fun, but um, <laughs> the other half. I had to bow out after the 15. <laughs> we appreciate it <laughs> to the other biracial people. No, that's it. Biracial. <laughs> they only get I'm half. Y'all, man, what are we doing now since Black History Month over for us? Hit the DM. <laughs> let me know. Before we have to let you go, uh, looking ahead, you're also going to be joining season three of uh, Bel Air on Peacock. Uh, what can we expect? I actually shot the first episode. I think last week, two weeks ago. Super dope. You know what I mean? Great cast, um, good writing, just a good energy. I'm having a great time with that. Why'd you want to join that project? What attracted you to it? I mean, I love the French Prince of Bel-Air. Who doesn't? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm looking for Jazzy Jeff. I'm still trying to find him. Yeah, yeah. you said you're going to throw him out the front steps. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to keep running with that narrative because shout out to the OG. He might come looking you know for mean? you. I'm sure he don't want to be thrown off no steps. You know? <laughs> Nobody does. Um, all right. Well, lots we could talk about, but we're going to have to leave it there. Actor, rapper, organizer, entrepreneur, Vic Mensa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. And that is our show tonight. Be sure to check out our website, WTTW.com slash news for the very latest from WTTW News. And join us tomorrow night at 530 and 10 for Chicago Tonight Latino Voices. State lawmakers weigh in on Governor Pritzker's budget address. And an exhibit at the National Public Housing Museum aims to bring home the impact of evictions on low-income renters. Now for all of us here at Chicago Tonight Black Voices, I'm Brandis Friedman. Stay healthy and safe and have a good night. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a Chicago personal injury and wrongful death firm that supports free educational initiatives in the legal profession.